0: Palmer against,
1: uh, Thompson. Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about Palmer v. Thompson. This case comes from the civil rights era and segregationists were hard at work finding ways to prevent integration.
0: Pools were unwelcome waters. In Cincinnati, whites threw nails and glass into pools and poured acid and bleach in Florida. Cities closed their pools instead of integrating, and private pools took their place.
1: In this case, the court decided that the Equal Protection Clause does not prohibit the city of Jackson, Mississippi from avoiding integration by closing its public pools. This is 5 to 4 a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have left our civil rights empty, like Fox News' primetime lineup Mm -hmm. without Tucker Carlson. Wow. That's right. Now, (laughs) we're always a little bit behind the news cycle. Sure. But, of course, this week, Tucker Carlson left Fox News. By the time our listeners hear this, I imagine he will already have signed with InfoWars.
0: <laughs> yeah, something like that. One
1: America News Network.
0: Or announced his candidacy for president. Mm-hmm. Something absolutely yeah. absurd.
1: He will be freely using the J word by the time this comes out. So, the J word? Get ready for that. Yeah, choose. Oh. He's going to say choose. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, no. Oh,
1: All right. Today's case Palmer v. Thompson. This is a case from 1971 about segregation. And as cases from 1971 about segregation go, it's not good.
0: Yeah, Yeah, we don't. It's a bad one. Not a good one.
1: Yeah. In the 50s and 60s, of course, there was a consistent struggle between the federal government on one hand and the state and local governments in the South on the other on the matter of segregation. Federal courts would order Southern jurisdictions to integrate, and those jurisdictions would figure out some way to either avoid the order or otherwise gum up the works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The city of Jackson, Mississippi, was ordered by federal courts to desegregate its public facilities, including its public pools. But the city did not desegregate its public pools. Instead, it shut them down entirely. Black residents of the city sued, claiming this was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, because obviously the motivation behind the move was to deny public services to black people, mm-hmm. and also a violation of the 13th Amendment, which is about the abolition of slavery. We'll get into that in a bit. But the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four decision, said that the motivation behind the decision to shut down the pools was irrelevant, and allowed for the decision to stand. Mm-hmm. So, Re, I'm going to hand it over to you for the background.
0: Yeah, you know, something that you wouldn't learn about reading this case, but is absolutely relevant, is a long history in the U.S. of public pools, specifically, being a battleground on which social issues are fought. There's a good amount of historical and sociological scholarship on this, actually, which I learned a lot from with just a brief dive into this stuff in preparation for this episode. You know, what public pools say about class divisions in the U.S., the relationship between public accommodations and immigrants in the U.S., gender integration, racial integration. You know, public pools are really like a hotspot for all of these political, social, culture wars. There's this professor at Harvard Law named Randall Kennedy who writes about race and the law. He wrote at one point that, quote, more intense opposition to desegregation was focused upon pools than any other site of recreation. There's also an author, Jeff Wiltsey, who wrote a book about public pools called Contested Waters. He argues in that book that public pools were harder to desegregate than public schools after Brown v. Board of Education. And in part, it's because of fucking cases like this in federal courts and at the Supreme Court. So at any rate, there's a really long history of racial discrimination at public pools in the U.S. It's in the South, but really across the country, like ever since the first public pool, which was actually a bathhouse for immigrant workers, opened in Boston in the late 1860s. And I think obviously like it's a given that racial segregation enforced by law is offensive and gross. But I also just want to make explicit, like, it's not just merely offensive in terms of whites wanting to be separated from black people and other races. Segregation is a tool. It's used within racial hierarchy as part of the effort for whites to monopolize authority, monopolize access, monopolize participation in society in order to continue the subordination of people of color, right? Especially Black people, Mm -hmm. especially at this time in American history. We're talking 50s, 60s, 70s, right? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this case as an example. Beginning in 1962, plaintiffs in Jackson, Mississippi, sued Alleging that the city's enforcement of segregation in their five public parks was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Like Peter said, they also alleged that this was a violation of the 13th Amendment. Now, federal courts granted the plaintiffs a declaratory judgment. Federal courts agreed with the plaintiffs, but they only issued a declaratory judgment, basically saying, like, yeah, I guess they're right on the law, but, like, we're not going to award them any remedy, right? The Mm -hmm. plaintiffs didn't get an injunction or anything like that. In that district court opinion, this is a federal judge, Sidney Mize, writing in this initial case in 1962, the opinion says, quote, As the city of Jackson rebuilt from the ashes of the Civil War, its white citizens occupied one area and its colored citizens chose to live together in another. Mm. No, chose. (laughs) Members of each race have customarily used the recreational facilities located in close proximity to their homes. The defendants (laughs) believe that the welfare of both races will best be served if this custom is continued. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. A sort of separate and yet still equal mm. kind of vibe going on. Yeah, still. right. I don't know if anyone's ever put it into those terms before. <laughs> Until me just now.
0: <laughs> Judge Mize goes on to say in this opinion that the defendants, this is the city of Jackson, they already understand that they can't legally enforce segregation in their public parks, but that it is, quote, a fact that, quote, Voluntary separation of the races has operated smoothly and apparently to the complete satisfaction of all concerned. For many years. Mm -hmm. I'm going to note here, it's obvious it's not to the complete satisfaction of everybody concerned since there's a fucking lawsuit. There's a
1: lawsuit, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: But okay. And he says that city officials in Jackson are, quote, outstanding high class gentlemen. (laughs) And also, in this opinion, paints racial justice advocates as committing, quote, deliberate attempts to create racial friction.
1: Uh huh.
0: But yeah, in the end, he does say, Yeah, the Constitution, you can't segregate your public parks, Jackson, Mississippi. Right. So the city sort of started to desegregate to some extent. They desegregated, they said, their public parks, their auditoriums, their public golf courses and the city zoo. But the public parks actually included public pools. And instead of desegregating the public pools, like Peter said, city council in Jackson, Mississippi, voted to surrender their lease of one of the pools and close the other four, which were city owned. And the reasons the city gave were that there would be riots if the pools were desegregated. So they needed to keep the peace Mm. and that maintaining integrated public pools would not be economically feasible. Mm. So the plaintiffs petitioned the city to reopen the pools, obviously as integrated public pools, the city refused. So the plaintiffs filed suit again, this time all the way up and down the federal fucking judiciary. Every step of this case through the appellate process, the city of Jackson wins Mm -hmm. district court, Fifth Circuit and fucking Supreme Court here. The district court, in fact, dismissed the lawsuit. The Fifth Circuit affirmed that dismissal and Fifth Circuit Judge Richard Rivas wrote in the majority opinion there at the Fifth Circuit that public pools are an unessential public facility. There's no constitutional rule that a city has to open an integrated public pool. He says this is not a problem of discrimination or racial animus because the pools are closed for everybody now. Mm. doesn't matter if you're white or black. And he says that the city's stated motive of preservation of order and maintenance of economy those motives were legitimate mm-hmm. so that's the fifth circuit the plaintiffs appeal to the supreme court and folks it doesn't get much better
1: yeah now by the way part of their justification was like well this might result in riots if we integrate the pools mm. but they had already integrated parks right. zoos yeah like all sorts of stuff the schools presumably Right, And they were like, but no, our people will not stand for the pools. Yeah. That is their final straw, Just trust us. fucking
0: stupid.
2: <laughs> well, I, I will say this. Like, I obviously, I don't think that's true. But to Ree's earlier point, though, right, it's worth, like, talking a little bit about, like, why pools are sort of like this situs of racial tension above and beyond so much else. And, you know, it's like... You're bathing next to someone, right? You're disrobing next to someone, mm-hmm. right? There's been a, a lot of writing about the sexual hangups that a lot of like white people had about black Americans mm-hmm. at these times, white men about white women being attracted to black men, uh, these stereotypes and tropes in fiction that persist today. And so this is sort of like the pool is an area where it's like, the intimacy brings all this stuff sort of to the front, right?
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Your puritanical white supremacist ideals are very much sort of like spotlit. Right. Right. In a public pool, right? There's yeah. like the public accommodations layer, there's the pool layer of like we're all together now in our bathing suits. Yeah. Ugh, you mm-hmm. know, it really is like a unique place.
1: Yeah. If you ever try to grab what you think is your friend's ankle in a public pool, and then it turns out to be a stranger's ankle. That's oof, oof. that's intimacy, you know? <laughs> so let's talk about the law. The legal question here is whether closing the pools violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Uh, we'll talk about the 13th Amendment a bit later. Now, this is actually an early case highlighting a very important aspect of equal protection law, which is the question of how you analyze an equal protection claim. Right. How do you know if a law violates the equal protection clause? On one hand, you have discriminatory intent or motive, meaning that the people passing the laws were driven to do so by a discriminatory purpose. They wanted to discriminate. Mm. That's why they did it. Right. On the other hand, you have the impact of the law. Does it disproportionately impact a certain race, a certain religion, gender, etc.? The court to this day wrestles with whether and in what circumstances each of these analyses actually apply and what the scope of those analyses are. And this was an interesting case because on one hand, you can argue that there is no disparate impact, right? They're just closing the pool for everyone. Right. There's a reasonable argument that it impacts all racial groups equally. Now, there's some nuance there I'm glossing over, but, you know, you can see that argument pretty cleanly. Mm -hmm. Right. On the other hand, the motivation is like plainly racist. Like, we all know what they're doing here. Right. Right. They don't want to integrate the pools, and so they're closing them down. Right. So this case becomes one of the first to tackle the question of, what do you do when the law has a racist purpose? Right. Justice Hugo Black writes the majority opinion. It essentially has two substantive parts. The first part is where he casts doubt on the idea that the motivation here was racist at all. He highlights the fact that this decision applied to black and white residents equally. Right. And then he says, yes, there is some evidence to support the idea that this was motivated by racism. But there is also, quote unquote, substantial evidence that integrating the pools was not safe or economically sustainable. Worth noting that the only evidence that he's like pointing to is just city officials saying it <laughs> like
2: right. in, in affidavits right, right. Yeah. yeah
1: they're not doing like an analysis like they didn't they don't have charts or anything no. they're right. just like no this might cause riots and also it's not economically feasible and that was it that's the evidence exactly a bunch
2: of racist segregationists said man It'll be really expensive and dangerous to integrate pools. And the Supreme Court was like, sounds right.
0: Good enough for mm-hmm. me. That's it. <laughs> well,
1: they are high class gentlemen. That's right. According yeah. to the lower court. So. <laughs> right,
0: right. The
2: lower court judge that Rhiannon mentioned earlier, Judge Mize, by the way, also a noted segregationist, it's worth, right. it's worth saying. In other cases said there was no policy of excluding black students at Ole Miss while the governor was out there being like, we will never have a black student at Ole Miss. Right, right. right. Up and down, the entire government apparatus at this point is segregationists, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, the second part of this opinion is the key component. What Justice Black says is that the motivation behind the law doesn't really matter. He says, quote, no case in this court has held that a legislative act may violate equal protection solely because of the motivations of the men who voted for it. He makes a couple of arguments. He says that it's hard to discern the true motive when legislators or officials do something, when they take an action. For example, there might be multiple motivations driving a legislator and who was a judge to try to decipher (laughs) all of that, right?
0: How would we even do that? Uh,
1: This is a common (laughs) refrain in these cases and conservatives use it in other contexts to talk about how like you can't truly determine a legislator's intent, Mm -hmm. right? Or a legislature's intent. And it's true that like motivation and intent are complex things, but it's like, Essentially, all of criminal law revolves around courts discerning defendants' intent. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like criminal prosecutions are built around showing that the defendant intended to do something illegal. Right. Otherwise, generally speaking, it's going to be a civil matter. It's only when powerful people whose motivations are in question that suddenly like courts get really philosophical about like the meaning of intent. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And whether or not you can be like, you know, liable for it, whether or not that's right. like an actual harm because you meant it or not.
1: Right. Right. Courts have no problem figuring out the intent of a criminal defendant in most cases. But if you place the machinery of power between your intent and your actions, the court will suddenly green light it. Right.
2: Absolutely. And just to highlight how sort of ridiculous this comparison is. There might not be anybody in the country who leaves a more complete and publicly available record of their thinking than legislators. Right. Right. There are records of all the different drafts of the bill. There are floor statements. There are campaign statements. There are interviews. It's like you are overwhelmed with evidence of their intent as compared to the typical Criminal case where you're like, man. Hopefully, we have a witness who can say he said this, or we have a text, right, or some shit like that.
0: Or just like he lifted his arm and pointed the gun, right? So we have intent. That is literally
1: enough for that. Intention. Shows what he yeah.
0: meant to do, right?
1: Right. So Black also says that even if we did strike down laws based on racist motivation, they could just be passed again with new motivations. <laughs> Now, (laughs) I like I truly don't understand this argument. Like, I don't understand how a clerk doesn't walk back up to him and be like, you can't put this in the (laughs) opinion. (laughs) Like, yes, some motivations for doing things are constitutional and some are not. Right. right? Mm -hmm. This is not a complex concept. It's common throughout the law. The same action can be legal or illegal, depending on your reason for doing it. Right. Absolutely. If I run a little convenience store. And I don't want to sell a guy a breakfast sandwich because he's being rude to my other customers. Totally fine. Legal. If I don't want to sell him a breakfast sandwich because he's ethnically Albanian, that's illegal. Right. Same action. Yeah. Same thing. One's legal. One's not. Very simple. Very simple stuff. What the court's doing is being like, well, we can't require them to keep pools open. That's not mandated by the Constitution. Right. And like, no. It's not. But sometimes your intention can make an otherwise legal action illegal. Right. Exactly. Just very obvious stuff. Not to mention, like, they're basically being like, well, what if the city tricks us later into thinking that they have a good motivation? It's like, you're allowed to call that out, too.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> if they're lying to you. It's <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we're gonna let him steal it now, because otherwise he's just gonna steal it later. Right. Like, right?
0: Does it make sense? Oh
1: god, this is just some of the most baby brain shit ever. And this is another area where I think it's almost refreshing compared to modern Supreme Court jurisprudence, where they've like learned to dress all of this up mm-hmm. in like all of these doctrines and yeah. things like that, right? Yep. And yep. now he's just like, well what if they just come up with another reason? And it's like, come on, man, you're a justice of the Supreme Court. Right. So anyway, it should be sort of obvious what's going on here. Right. If you are simply ignoring the racist motivation behind this action, you lose all of the context. Right. You're missing the fact that even though on its face, it might impact white and black people equally. It is designed to punish and intimidate Black residents. Yes. That is the point of it. Absolutely. Period. It's designed to tell them that we would rather have nothing than share something with you.
0: And everyone involved in this case fucking knows that. Right. Absolutely. It is obvious to everybody.
1: Mm. Right. Which is why Justice Black is like, well, the motivation doesn't matter. Right. Because he doesn't want to have to confront it. Right. <laughs> exactly. He doesn't want to have to confront this complex question of what do you do. That's it. When every fucking jurisdiction south of the Mason-Dixon And what, 80% of them up north (laughs) (laughs) are just racist as shit. Right.
0: Right, exactly, exactly.
1: And so to that point,
2: like this case has become like sort of a seminal case in con law. Like I learned this as like the case about what's called rational basis review, sort of like how rational basis review is taught. Standards of review are sort of like when a professor grades on a curve, right, and Like, if you have the option of taking a class with a professor who's known to only give one A the entire semester versus a professor who gives just about everyone A's, you want to be in the class with the guy who gives everyone in an A, right? Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of these cases, they're like, you're arguing about the standard of review because it's like, well, I don't want to be in the class where everyone fails because then I'm going to lose my case. And so this is like the rational basis review case. And when you go back and read it and you're like, this is nonsense, It's fucking stupid. Like, the fact is that the court regularly engages in interrogating the motives of legislators when they choose a higher standard of review. Yeah. And the rationale for choosing a higher standard of review is that there's something that has raised their suspicion. I think this is pretty fucking suspicious. Exactly. That they got in order to desegregate the pools and decided instead to close them. That seems suspicious. Right. right? Like, I don't know. It's such garbage. Right. But it has been sort of sanitized and abstracted to the point where it's like you read like three excerpted paragraphs of it in a casebook in your first year of con and are like, okay, I get it. It doesn't disproportionately impact, you know, blacks and whites, they feel yeah, it yeah. the same. And so therefore you don't interrogate motives and that's rational basis review at the end. And it's like, no, this is fucking racism. This is basic segregation, undisguised, barely dressed up. Segregation. Mm-hmm. Like, that's all this is. And it's like a seminal right. case. It's good law. Let's take
0: a break. Okay, we are back.
1: So, there's also an argument here about the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. Now, in the 1880s, in the civil rights cases, the Supreme Court said, yeah, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, but it also implicitly abolishes what they call the badges and incidents of slavery. Mm-hmm basically these things that flowed directly out of slavery, right? Mm-hmm, right? Things like restrictions on freedom of movement, et cetera, right? All of these sort of legal restrictions on Black citizens that followed from slavery and were being imposed by Southern jurisdictions, especially after the Civil War. So one of the arguments here was what was at the time relatively creative but plausible claim that like, look, you can track this back to slavery pretty readily, Mm -hmm. right? These sorts of segregated facilities are, in fact, something that flowed out of the slavery era. There's a 13th Amendment claim here. Now, this is a pretty complex claim for a couple of reasons. One is that, of course, once you're past 100 years or whatever, it's, you know, the causal connection becomes harder and harder to argue over time. And also you have the Equal Protection Clause, which should be able to protect you from discrimination. So there's a question of whether you need the 13th Amendment in a situation like this. But there's a ton of interesting questions about whether the 13th Amendment should apply outside of like the era ending in the 1880s. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. And the court just shrugs it off and says no. And so we sort of like Never see the Supreme Court address that question to the degree that it should be, whether or not you think that there's like a valid 13th Amendment claim here. The way that the court shrugs at it in this is just pretty pathetic, just mm-hmm. sort of completely rolling their eyes at it. Yeah. 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 They're
0: putting the kibosh on 13th Amendment claims like at this time at the Supreme Court. Yeah. They're just saying, yeah, like, that's not going to fly. We don't have those claims anymore. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. They don't even believe that segregation is real right now, let alone it's like related to slavery somehow.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Right.
2: So Berger has a concurrence, Warren Berger. We've talked about him as the wholly unimpressive steward of this transition away from protecting rights to rolling back rights that the court went through right around this time. His concurrence, not very persuasive, I didn't think. He basically says, look we can't really just go micromanaging every little municipality out there, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, literally, he says, we would do a great disservice were we to require that every decision of local governments to terminate a desirable service be subjected to a microscopic scrutiny for forbidden motives. I don't think that's really what's going on here, though.
1: No, like that's absolutely <laughs> not what's happening. No one's asking <laughs> you to do that.
2: Right. Yeah. We don't want to know, like, whether or not they are watering the municipal golf course closer to the Black neighborhoods less frequently than they water the ones in the white neighborhoods, right? Like, they were sued to desegregate a decade after Brown v. Board right. because they still hadn't desegregated, like, any of their public accommodations.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: They fought it and eventually started just closing some of those public services. In response to that litigation, like it's not a microscopic scrutiny. These aren't any random services. Right. This is the civil rights fight of the century. Right. Like happening right right there
0: in the open. Like, who are you fucking kidding? Exactly.
2: Garbage. It's absolute garbage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Blackman also follows this up with a fucking weird concurrence too. You know, Blackman later in his career really good on some stuff. Sucked early on. Yeah, yeah. This is an example. Pre lobotomy. <laughs> 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 Earlier in his time on the Supreme Court, doing a very weird both sides thing, mm-hmm. concurring in the judgment. Like you know, he's in the majority here, deciding vote. Yes, right, exactly this decision is 5-4, Blackman the fifth here. And he just writes like a few paragraphs to be like, both sides have some points, but here's what convinced me. And he says that he is convinced that Jackson, Mississippi officials are not operating with racial animus in the pool closure decision because they did desegregate the rest of the public parks. Mm. And it's like,
2: after being ordered by the courts. Right.
0: right. <laughs> After being ordered by the courts. And then they shut down part of the public park so that they weren't <laughs> having the <desalinated. laughs> to Are you so stupid? Sorry, Rachel, on the audio.
1: <laughs> he's basically like, look, pools, who cares? Right. You know? yeah. like, there's li- yeah. That's literally part of his uh, opinion where he's sort of like, you know, pools aren't that important. Maybe yes. if pools are more important, it's like, yeah, look, you can do racism on the little things like pools, <laughs> right, right, right. maybe exactly. a zoo, you know, if yeah. you wanna try if you <laughs> yeah. wanna try segregating a zoo, maybe we'll let you. It's
0: bizarre. It's so stupid and bizarre. I mean,
2: again, this litigation started a decade after Brown V board. A decade yes. after Brown v. Board, they still hadn't desegregated any of their public parks. And then fought it for nearly a decade onward, right? Yes, yes. And you're saying, yeah, but they're not operating out of animus. We forced them to desegregate some of their stuff and they did it, you know, (laughs) through much gnashing of teeth and rending of garments. They eventually desegregated their zoo. So I just have to assume all that other racial animus that is clearly evident in their last 15 to 20 years of behavior has just evaporated. Right. It's mm-hmm. fucking moronic. Like, it's so <laughs> stupid. stupid. God, it makes me so angry. This case made me so angry. It made me so angry in law school. Yeah. I remember yelling about this in class, too.
1: All right. So Justice Douglas has the first dissent, and it's a pretty cool one. Mm. He addresses a lot of the concerns raised by the majority. Like, the majority and the concurrences are constantly pointing out like, hey, there's nothing in the Constitution saying that cities have to provide public pools. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> I know. That's not the point. <laughs>
2: right? That's not what we're doing the here. The point
1: is that the decision is motivated by racial animus and fostering racial discrimination. He puts this in terms of the Ninth Amendment, which, of course, says that, like, the Constitution is not an exhaustive list mm-hmm. of the people's rights. Right. A cool little relic of the era when people were still reading the Ninth Amendment uh, in Supreme Court decisions. Mm -hmm. Thought
0: that it might mean something. Yeah.
1: And he quotes the dissenters in the Court of Appeals case below. They said, The closing of these city's pools has done more than deprive a few thousand black residents of the pleasures of swimming. It has taught Jackson's black residents a lesson. In Jackson, the price of protest is high. Black residents there now know that they risk losing even segregated public facilities if they dare protest segregation. Black residents will now think twice before protesting segregated public parks, segregated public libraries, or other segregated facilities. They must first decide whether they wish to risk living without the facility altogether and at the same time engendering further animosity from a white community which has lost its public facilities, also through the Black residents attempts to desegregate these facilities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So making a pretty concise statement there about what is actually happening, just adding like the sort of necessary and obvious context, like, yes, this is designed to punish black residents for requesting desegregated facilities to chill their desire to do so in the future. And it's designed to foster animosity mm-hmm. between yes. black and white residents. The you know irony being that it was the Jackson officials being like, well, this might cause too much tension mm-hmm. right. between black and white residents when, in fact, their whole project is to create tension between black and white residents. Absolutely. Exactly. And yeah, he closes the dissent by stating what I think is the obvious. Cities are free to close down public facilities like pools, but they can't close it down if their goal is solely to avoid desegregating. Right. Right.
2: <laughs> Uh, right, that's <laughs> not. It's, it really isn't that hard. Like no, not at all. No, no. So Justice White also has a dissent, very different from Douglas. Also very good, extremely detailed history. I think starting with Brown v. Board and discussing it's just sort of going through how that wasn't the end of Jim Crow. That wasn't the end of segregation. That was the right. start of a long and arduous process by which these public officials, including those in Jackson, had to be like harassed by the courts and by the federal government and by their own people over the course of like 20 years to desegregate. He does it through the lens of court cases because that's what they do, but you know, you could look at it through historical lenses as well. It's an incomplete history in that sense, but it's an important one. It's an important antidote, I think, because you read the majority and some ways it, it feels like it could have been written like today, like the, yeah. the tender oh, yeah. sort of like segregation, the racial troubles that's behind us. It's like, what are you talking about? This case is ongoing. Like you're, you're hearing right. a case about it. Right. <laughs> like, exactly. They're talking about this shit like it's the distant past. It's like the same fucking mayor. <laughs> right? Like Right. It's right. Absolutely nuts. And so like to have someone be like, look, like this has been going on pretty much since day one, since Brown v. Board. We have met nothing but resistance in our efforts to desegregate Mm -hmm. American society, especially in the South, but everywhere. That's true in Jackson. It was true of the public school systems. It was true of the public parks, and it's true of their public pools. And here is 20 years of litigation to prove the point. So what are you talking about? Right. Like to the majority, right. like what world are you living
1: right. in? Right. George Wallace is literally the governor of Alabama. Right. Like the state next door while this is going down. And yeah. they're doing this weird, like technical analysis of racism yeah. that feels like very modern conservative rhetorical tactics. Right? right. Like, very, like, well, look, you're saying you can't close a pool? Like these sort of like deflections from the context. Very, uh, yeah, Tucker Carlson sort of stuff. There is a quote I
2: wanted to read from this. I thought was pretty good from White. He's talking about like, as Peter mentioned, this is all based on literally just speculation from city officials being like, oh, it'll be really expensive and really dangerous to desegregate the pools and nothing else, right? Just like baseless statements. And so he says, Justice White says, in my view, The 14th Amendment does not permit any official act, whether in the form of open refusal to desegregate facilities that continue to operate, decisions to delay complete desegregation or closure of facilities, to be predicated on so weak a read. Public officials sworn to uphold the Constitution may not avoid a constitutional duty by bowing to the hypothetical effects of private racial prejudice that they assume to be both widely and deeply held. Surely the promise of the 14th Amendment demands more than nihilistic surrender. Yeah. And I think that's right. I really like that last line because nihilistic surrender has been what we've gotten yeah. for the last 50 years. Exactly. Yep.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. A good point that I think is obvious to a degree, but articulated very well that, like, if Jackson, Mississippi can say, no, we're not going to provide an integrated facility because our residents are too racist. Yeah. That is essentially giving veto power to racists within these jurisdictions. That's right. Exactly. right over any integration. Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think that's exactly right. Justice Marshall, Thurgood Marshall, also has a dissent here. Really short, but powerful, I think, especially from a black man who grew up in a deeply segregated country and was nearly lynched for his legal work uh, Mm -hmm. multiple times on desegregation efforts and racial equality and argued the case in front of the Supreme Court that ruled that segregation was, in fact, unconstitutional. So he says the argument that the closure of the pools applies equally to all races, that has shit all to do with the 14th Amendment. Right. The Equal Protection Clause, he says, protects individual rights. These rights are personal to the individual. He says, quote, Equal protection of the laws is not achieved through indiscriminate imposition of inequalities. When the officials of Jackson, Mississippi, denied a single Negro child the opportunity to go swimming simply because he is a Negro, rights guaranteed to that child by the 14th Amendment were lost. The fact that the color of his skin is used to prevent others from swimming in public pools is irrelevant. He also says that Brown v. Board has already been decided and it is equally applicable like across public schools, across public Places, right? Universities, primary school, recreational facilities, everywhere, regardless of whatever stupid shit a municipality or a state say about like the economic burden, right? So Mm -hmm. there's no logical reason why we are doing a carve out here for public pools in the public parks context. Like it just doesn't make any sense. None. So I think that brings us to probably like a little bit of discussion of what some scholars have called leveling down as a discrimination solution, right? So it's this idea that public officials across the country in many ways have responded to efforts to desegregate, calls to desegregate, orders to desegregate, or really just the expectation that you are giving equal protection to your residents and citizens, that public officials across the country have responded to that over the decades by sort of leveling down the services that they're providing to all people, right? In this case, it is shutting down a public service because they don't want to give it equally. To everybody. Deborah Brake is a law professor. She wrote an article about this, and I really like the title. When equality leaves everyone worse off, right? I think it's a good description of like what this kind of leveling down concept is. Mm-hmm. First off, I think like we need to call leveling down what it is, which is what Justice Douglas was talking about in his dissent. Leveling down city services, state services is retaliatory. Mm -hmm. It is how bad teachers and parents punish children. It is how stupid government officials punish people who speak up and demand things like equality from their government. Right. In this case, closing down the pools altogether is targeted retaliation at racial justice activists and Black residents of Jackson, Mississippi, right? City officials are saying, if you fight for this stuff, if you speak up about this, if you bother us about this, well, we won't give it at all, right? And on top of that, you will deal with other people, with white people, who will be angry at you because they lost this city service too, right? So leveling down, I think, is absolutely a tool that city officials use to like buck their responsibilities, to provide sort of equal services, equal protection of the law. But it is also a tool used to silence people. It is a tool used to punish people, right, for asking and expecting that their government do what the government is supposed to do. I think also like leveling down also shows a really impoverished way the Supreme Court, but really like our entire legal system, looks at equality law in general and what equality law is supposed to protect, right? Like You know, supposedly neutral, quote unquote, equal treatment, like in this case, meaning the public pools are shut down for both black and white people. Right. Mm -hmm. That supposedly being all that equality law requires, that's not the only norm here. We don't have to accept that. Right. Right. You can also think about equality law as protecting our right to be treated as an equal not to just receive equal shitty treatment, right? right? right. When government officials level down services, level down their responsibilities to us, that's what they are doing. They are accepting the very lowest, most impoverished, most reductive and shittiest version of what equality could mean, right?
1: right? You remember that scene in The Simpsons when... Bart is like, I'm going to swing my arms like this. And if I happen to hit you, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's going to be your fault.
0: Exactly. And yes. Lisa's
1: like, I'm going to kick the air. And if, if I happen to hit you, that'll <laughs> right. be your fault.
0: Right, right.
1: That's what this is, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Swinging your arms in the air, walking towards a minority population. And then when they get hit, being like, what? what? Right. <laughs> it's not discrimination. I was just swinging my arms wildly through the air. And
0: swinging my arms equally. Yeah. Yep.
2: I think this case is such a good like sort of synecdoche for like largely how racism ends up hurting white people too, right? Like white supremacy, what's the phrase? It's like racism is a poison first ingested by the racists or or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like white kids don't have public pools now either, right? Like this is when you let cops pull over whoever on pretextual bullshit and let them abuse people's rights – turns out a lot of poor white people end up having their rights violated too right, right this happens throughout our law where this toleration of leveling down means that everyone suffers everyone is worse off we are worse off exactly as a society
0: right exactly but the blame gets placed right. on the minority population right? That's right on the people of color on yeah it's
2: also important to sort of discuss how this was like a piece of Rebuilding segregation, right? Like, at the same time, you are reducing funding to the public commons that are now mandated by law to be integrated. You are funding big highways out to new suburbs, newly zoned residential suburbs, new infill, you know, land that used to be swamps that you've now like. All of a sudden, we've we've decided we're going to fill that in, we're going to make it single family homes, and we're going to build highways out to it, and we're going to put in a bunch of subsidies. And lo and behold, all of a sudden you have all white neighborhoods. Oh, and the public schools there will be funded by property taxes. And guess what? You have white schools, well-funded, white families living in model homes, each with their own private pool or in little gated communities with their shared all white pools, once again, while the greater public has been denied a fair and equal society, right? Right. This was one piece of that larger project. And I don't know that it was the Supreme Court's job to say, you can't build the suburbs or (laughs) or whatever, but I do know that they could have done more to make this harder. They could have made it harder to punish the people who decided to live In the integrated urban core, right? It didn't have to be this easy. You didn't have to fucking grease the wheels here and make it as easy as possible to just destroy all of our public goods while a bunch of segregationists fled to the suburbs and the exurbs and recreated a fully segregated society. Mm -hmm. This was an affirmative choice by the court to aid in the recreation of segregation, right? Totally. And this case is a archetypal example of it.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, circling back to like the law here, the question of whether we should be analyzing the motivations of lawmakers is still relatively controversial in like legal academic circles. Mm-hmm. Most prominently, it came to the Supreme Court's attention in Trump v. Hawaii, the case about Trump's Muslim ban in 2018. We've covered that case, but what happened was Trump said, hey, I'm going to ban Muslims from entering the country. (laughs) And then he didn't quite do that, right? Well, he tried at first. Well, sure. But he never did that exactly. Instead, (laughs) he attempted to implement a set of regulations banning people from certain majority Muslim countries. Uh, that way, he could argue that he wasn't actually banning Muslims, which would, of course, be flatly unconstitutional. But what people said was, hey, uh, we know that his motivation was banning Muslims. He mm-hmm. said it all the time. It was straight up on his website. So like, even if that's not exactly what the policy says, it's unconstitutional on that basis. But the court said it was okay and argued, like the Palmer Court, that the motivations of lawmakers should be ignored. Now, what's interesting about that case is not just that it has parallels with Palmer, the Trump Department of Justice cited Palmer v. Thompson Mm -hmm. in their briefs in order to make the argument, just relying on a case upholding segregationist practices in order to justify modern discrimination. So 50-ish years later, the same exact bullshit being pulled. I fucking hate these arguments because like, I mean, with Trump, it was almost too ridiculous. (laughs) Like he was just like, I want to ban Muslims. And everyone was like, no, you can't say that. And he's like, what about some Muslims? And they were like, all right. That's cool. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? Right, right. Like, I um, remember having uh, discussions with other lawyers about this who thought that this should be allowed in some form and in my mind, it doesn't matter how narrow you get. You can get down to one Muslim guy and be like, all right, we're just banning him. And I'm going to say it's because I don't like him. Right. And that's not unconstitutional. That's not an unconstitutional reason to ban someone. Doesn't matter. Everyone knows your original reason was that you hated Muslims. Shouldn't fly. But yeah, I don't know. I guess the lesson of Trump be Hawaii is that this sort of like fake humoring of the excuses for racism, the like justifications for racism continues full throttle yes, to this day
0: exactly
2: and you know I actually tweeted about this case not too long ago and my replies were filled with a lot of examples uh, of this stuff both then and now
0: yeah this leveling down idea where like right. municipal or state officials just decide like fuck it we're not going to do this at all if they aren't allowed to do it in their discriminatory fucking evil little monster way.
2: Yeah. So some of them were like public schools closed entirely in counties in the South, in Virginia for years. And of course, when they finally came back, well, a lot of Black kids didn't return to the schools, right? They had lost several years of education while white kids were off at private schools. And, and so you just had entire lost generations. Uh-huh. Heather McGee, wrote a book where she called this stuff drained pool politics because it was so Mm -hmm. common. One town in South Carolina didn't close their pools, but started uh, hosting and having (laughs) sea lions live in the public pools, making them just completely inaccessible to everyone.
1: That's got to be more expensive. than Integrating. Right. Right. How do you even get that idea?
0: I don't know. Like, we're making it a zoo? Like, I don't understand.
2: Yeah. And so I had tweeted about it because I think the modern example that we're seeing a lot of now is with libraries. And Mm -hmm. with people who are angry about the idea that they have to share the library with gay people and black people. They don't want to see black histories in the library. They don't want to see books that center gay characters and explore gender identity. And so... A town in Michigan defunded their libraries entirely over LGBTQ stuff. Texas, there was a town in Texas that was talking about doing it, but there was so much backlash. They seem to have, at least for the time being, decided they weren't going to completely defund their public library system. Missouri, the entire state, seems to be on the cusp of defunding all their public libraries. This stuff is still with us. This tactic, this animus the stuff that you know, Berger and Black and Blackman and all them and the majority here thought was in the rear view in 1971 is alive and well,
0: yes, right now.
2: And the challenge is still on us in building a better and more inclusive uh, society.
0: Exactly.
1: Before we wrap up, I think it's worth pointing out that this is a classic example of the ways in which legal analysis fails to deal with context and as a result becomes blind to some obvious realities. Everyone knows what happened here, right? Everyone knows the motivations of the Jackson City officials for shutting down the pools. Everyone knows that their goal was to express their disdain for integration, to cast doubt over future attempts to integrate. The majority does this wink-wink bullshit where they say like, oh, what, you can't close down a pool now? Mm -hmm. Like you're a fucking idiot You can't put together a couple pieces of context. Mm -hmm. And I think legal analysis is particularly susceptible to this sort of like technical, context-free reasoning because lawyers want to imagine that they are being objective. And so they search for like simple, easy-to-apply rules that they can follow. Mm -hmm. But there are no simple rules that can parse these complex circumstances effectively. So what they end up doing instead is shedding all of the context until they've simplified the situation down to a caricature. So what starts as a question of whether a city can undermine integration efforts by strategically closing down public facilities gets reduced to, are cities allowed to close pools? And all of the complexity and nuance is lost. And I think that's something that only a lawyer can do Mm -hmm. as effectively as you see the majority do it here Mm -hmm.
0: yes well put that's just it's just fucking lawyer brain
2: if you're a 1l look forward to talking about this case for five minutes (laughs) before moving on to intermediate (laughs) scrutiny
1: right (laughs) next week we are talking with steve vladek Professor Steve Blahnik coming back on the show to talk about his new book about the Shadow Docket. Mm-hmm. The name, is it, is it just Shadow Docket <laughs> or something? What is it?
2: It's <laughs> titled The Shadow Docket.
1: When something has a cool name, you don't need to fuck around looking yeah, for the title. Yeah, that's you know?
0: right. That's <laughs> right.
1: Follow us on Twitter at 54Pod. Subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash 54Pod, all spelled out for premium and ad-free episodes, access to uh, bonus content, our Slack, all sorts of shit. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye! 5
2: to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin, and our researcher is Jonathan DeBruin. Peter Murphy designed our website, 54pod.com. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial
1: Relations. Justice Hugo Black writes the majority opinion. I'm recording, right? Yeah, thank God. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh.